you're giving your offering or getting coffee, make your way in as soon as you can. But for the rest of us, it's time to start. So like the majority of you, I was around my family for Thanksgiving. And uh, inevitably, because I'm a pastor, spiritual conversations come up. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the overwhelming thing that I realized was like, wow, there's some really out there viewpoints on Jesus and how people view God and just different perspectives. And so I was like, huh, well, I'm going to do a series on Jesus. And that's going to take us through uh, Christmas. What better topic could there be? I can't think of a better one than that one. So we're doing Jesus Encounter. You throw the first slide up there. There's nobody like him. There's no one more relevant, no one more necessary, and no no one more capable than Jesus. I want you to say this with me. There are many opinions, but there is only one truth. That's true. Many opinions, only one truth. His name is Jesus. Hebrew is Yeshua. His name is a compound word. It means Yahweh saves. So he is the God who saves. The word Christ is a title given to him, and it means anointed by God. Right? One who carries the presence and the anointing of God. And so he is the God who saved, who was anointed and empowered to do so. A little bit of what we know about Jesus, what the Bible teaches us, and you kind of, I'm going to put it in the context of the world that we live in. He comes from Nazareth. Well, what's Nazareth? It's a blue-collar town. The town that Jesus came from is the kind of place where everybody changes their own oil. All right? They watch wrestling on the weekends. It was like a normal, working-class town. His father was a guy named Joe. He was a carpenter named Joseph. So he comes from a blue-collar family in a blue-collar town. He was conceived by a single mother, a single teenage mother. And you say, why did all of that happen in Jesus' life? Why was it set up that way? Jesus came to identify with you and I. He became like us in order that we would have a point of identity with him. He became like us in order that he, we might become like him. His purpose was become, to become like us so that we would become like him. And we didn't, he didn't make his presence known until he was 30. He was heir to the king of Israel. He was the bloodline to the king, to the throne of Israel. Even though his father, he was, so he was heir to the throne of Israel by blood, and he was heir to the throne of Israel by uh, uh, by legal right. So even though his family were inheritors of the throne of the nation, the line of the kings had been cut down. And there was no longer any kings in Israel from that bloodline of David. It had been cut down. And the Bible actually prophesies this. It talks about a tree being cut down. And in Jeremiah, there's a couple of places. But Jeremiah is the most distinct. It's where we get the word that he's going to be a Nazarene. And the word Nazare means branch. And so with the, the image that the prophet presents is the line of the kings or the tree of the kings being cut down and no longer functioning. But there will come one who is a Nazar, and he will grow from the root of Jesse. And that's who Jesus is. His line of the, at this point in time, the line of the kings has, has been cut down, and now we have Jesus coming on the scene, and he's coming on the scene as a king. He didn't make his purpose known. <laughs> He didn't make his purpose known until he was 30. When he was 30 years old, he came preaching, he came teaching, he came doing miracles, and he came doing healing. Why, was it, why did Jesus wait till he was 30? You ever wonder that? 
Because there's a twofold thing going on in play. Number one is an identity with us. And the second one is a fulfillment of Scripture. The priest was not to enter their office according to the book of Numbers until they were 30 years old. And so Jesus, in fulfillment and in alignment with the Word of God, did not begin his earthly ministry until he was 30. So he came to not only identify with us, he also came to fulfill the Word of God. And so this is exactly what's going on with him. He was executed because he claimed to be God. This is important. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the authority to take it back up again. No one took his life. Jesus gave it away, and he gave it away for a purpose. Today, Jesus is the most loved and most hated. You either love him or you hate him. And that's exactly where he wants you to be. Jesus is not interested in a middle-of-the-road opinion. He's not, he's not interested in that. You're either with me or you're against me. Either or. It's very binary. It's very black and white. It's very narrow. And people go, oh, you Christians are narrow. No, the gospel's narrow. Okay? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. It's not an issue of whether the church is being narrow. It's an issue of who, what God says. He's not interested in people saying, well, I think Jesus is a good man. I think he's one among many. He's not interested in that conversation at all. That's not what he, that is not the position that he even allows. And what he does in people's lives is he forces them to a point of decision. If you're here this morning and you've never confessed Christ, you're going to come to a point of decision today. You're either going to believe who he is or you're not. It's your choice. But you're not going to hold the middle ground because that's not acceptable to him. It's not acceptable for him to be one among many. He's the one and only. He's either the one and only or he's nothing at all. So pick your, pick your, pick your stand. Choose your, choose your hot, your cold, no lukewarm. I have no tolerance for that. You see it again and again. There's more songs written about him, more books written, more art created over this person than anybody else in all of human history. Time itself is divided. We have B.C., before Christ, and then we have A.D., Anno Domini, after his, at the year of the Lord. That, that offends many people in our culture today to the point where our quote-unquote professors and scientists and people like that, they want to, uh, instead of using B.C. because it's offensive to say before Christ, they now use B.C.E., which is before common era. And so there's, the, yeah, you have anybody ever heard B.C.E.? Yeah, well, you watch, if you watch certain shows, you watch the History Channel, you watch anything, they won't use the word B.C. anymore. They use the word B.C.E. because they're trying to take Jesus out of it. Happy holidays. No, Merry Christmas. <laughs> there's, an there's an assault. You can take anybody's name you want to, but don't use the name of Jesus. Anybody. Gandhi, Buddha. I mean, any, don't, but don't use his name. Next slide. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about opinions. And my point here this morning is that there's many opinions, but there's only one truth. That's the sum of the matter, right? So here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:14, 14, he's telling them that there's going to be other people who are going to come among you, and they're going to preach a Jesus that I have not preached. They're going to tell you about a Jesus that I have not made known to you. And he says, my concern for you is that you're going to tolerate it. In fact, he actually says, the church is going to tolerate another Jesus other than the one that's proclaimed in the scripture. So it's very important that we understand who Jesus is in the Bible. Okay? It's very important. There's lots of Jesuses being proclaimed, even among the churches. <laughs> you can give me an amen. That's okay. It's going to be something. Right? 
Many opinions, one truth. So here's the, here's the viewpoints of Jesus. Jesus in religion and cults, all right? So we have the religions and the cults. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. To the universalists, which is a church, which are uh, uh, Christian churches who say, everybody's saved. We're all saved. There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as judgment. We're all saved, and we're all going to go off to fairyland. They would also be the ecumenical churches, which means all faiths are equal. There are churches in America and in the world today that have a universalist perspective, and they have what's called an ecumenical perspective. An ecumenical perspective means that all faiths are equal. And there's an offspring of these two churches called emergent churches, and this is their view. Jesus is Mr. Rogers. Never going to do anything wrong, and he's waiting to take us all to Neverland. That's their perspective. It's true. This is what's going on in our culture. To the Baha'i, Jesus is a human prophet. A human and a prophet less than Muhammad or Baha'u'llah. Islam, Jesus is a man, he's a prophet, and he's inferior to, to Muhammad. This is who they, they say Jesus is. To the Buddhist, he's an enlightened man like the Buddha. To the Hindu, he's just one of many. One of many hundreds of gods. To the Jehovah Witnesses, he's a created being and the Archangel Michael. Say, are Jehovah Witnesses Christian? Not by a long shot. They're a cult. Mormons, aren't they Christians? Nope, not by a long shot. They believe Jesus was a polygamist male. And he was the half-brother of Lucifer. Yeah. Here's an even better one. The Scientologists believe that he was an implant forced upon Thetans over a million years ago. You say, Pastor, can you explain that? No. <laughs> say, how come you can't explain it? Well, I stopped doing drugs about 30 years ago, so my, you know, the psychedelic side of my brain has now come back into reality. Deepak Chopra, another guy very celebrated in our culture, books by Deepak Chopra. Jesus is a state of consciousness to aspire towards. So Jesus, not, even Jesus is the person, he's not uniquely God, he's not divine, he's not savior, he's just a state of consciousness that we aspire towards. Gandhi said Jesus is not uniquely divine. People want to say Gandhi was a Christian, his words don't reflect it. They say, well, he said Jesus was divine, he said he was divine, but he was not uniquely divine, because he's coming from a Hindu perspective. Jesus is just one among many gods, that was his perspective, like Brahma, like all of the other Hindu gods. L. Ron Hubbard said this, who's the founder of Scientology, in case you don't know. He said, on the cross was a man, not a Christ. Wow. Yeah. And here's our great philosopher and theologian of the day, Oprah Winfrey. She says, quote, Jesus is not the only way. He's just a state of consciousness. Next slide. So a lot of opinions, but only one truth. In culture, so here's Bansky. We have him reflected, in, he's reflected even in modern art. We have Dog the Bounty Hunter. Jesus is a constant feature on Dog the Bounty Hunter. I don't know if you always see that. I don't know if anybody here wants to admit that. If you ever watch Dog the Bounty Hunter, okay? Dog the Bounty Hunter pay, prays before they go to get that fugitive. Lord Jesus, may we find that fugitive. May we cuff that fugitive. May we smoke a cigarette with that fugitive. And may we tell him about you. And literally, that's what he does. They cuff that fugitive. They give him a cigarette, and they start going, you know Jesus, brother? <laughs> Straight up. Kanye West was portrayed as Jesus on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's frequently portrayed on South Park, which is not really the best of shows, and also on The Simpsons. Jesus is everywhere. There's a lot of opinions. Next slide. 
latest movies, Da Vinci Code, Passion of the Christ, and my favorite, that Canadian masterpiece, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, okay? <laughs> in the movie Ricky Bobby, he was, uh, Ricky Bobby, if you saw this, this is how he's portrayed in culture. Again, many opinions, only one truth. In Ricky Bobby, he would pray to an eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper, and he would say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for my smoking hot wife. And what they would do, they sit at the, at the table and they're talking about opinions of who? Jesus. And Cal, his sidekick, says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because it says, I like to be formal, but I'm here to party, okay? <laughs> Lots of opinions, only one truth. Next slide. So we need to let Jesus speak for himself, can we? That's right. Jesus has no problem speaking for himself. Lots of opinions, only one truth. He said he came down from heaven. This is his first claim. He, I came down from heaven, which means he is superior to all who claim to have a heavenly encounter. Muhammad claimed to go to heaven. Jesus said, I didn't go to heaven. I came down from there. It is my point. I created that realm, and it is my point of origin. It's where I come forth from. At this, the Jews began to grumble among themselves because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. So Jesus, a lot of the things that he's saying, he's speaking into a Jewish culture. These are people who were raised with the word of God their whole life. If you were a Jew from the age of five until the age of 13, you were educated in the law of God. You, you, were, you were not trained in mathematics. You were not trained in sociology. You were not even trained in languages. You were trained in your own language, but what the Jews trained their children in was the word of God. And from the time they were five until the time they were 13. And when they were 13, they would be examined by a priest to see if there's to test their proficiency in knowledge and ability. And if they had proficiency in knowledge and ability, not in math, but in the word of God, they were allowed to continue to another level. And they would be examined all the way up. And so that's what ends up happening. That's why you have a fisherman like Peter. If you've ever read what Peter says, Peter can quote the word of God inside and out. Well, how did he know that? Because from the age of five to the age of whatever age he got cut off, somewhere along the line, they looked at Peter and go, eh, I don't know, man. You're just not going to make it. You know, might, you might want to you might think about fishing. Have you ever thought about fishing, Peter? And then you see a guy like Paul who demonstrated proficiency all the way up. And he stood in the Sanhedrin, the council among, the Gam among Gamaliel. He stood among the elders. How was that possible? It was possible because he demonstrated proficiency in the word of God. And so Jesus is speaking to a culture not ignorant of who he's supposed to be. So a lot of the things he's saying, he's talking their language. And that's why when you and I read it, we kind of go, well, what's the big deal about what he said? Because he's pushing the buttons. He's telling them, he's speaking to them in a way that he expected them to understand. He expected them to understand what he was saying, and they did. He said, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. And they were offended. They're like, well, what's the big deal with that? They might have said, he's crazy. No, they knew what he was saying. Because he was, he was backing up into the bread and the manna that was in, in Israel. When, he, when, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God provided divine provision. He gave them manna, and the manna came down from heaven. And it was what sustained them and what gave them life. And Jesus is saying, I am the manna that's come down from heaven. I am the substance of life, and I am of divine origin. That's exactly what he's saying. They knew what he was saying, or they wouldn't have been offended. You say, all religions believe the same thing, not about Jesus. They don't, ladies and gentlemen. It's very important to understand that. 
All religions, including humanism, require man to ascend and evolve. Even humanists. And I was speaking to one over the weekend. He said, well, I just believe we don't have the knowledge we haven't fully evolved yet. It's, a, it's the same principle. Every, every religion requires you to do something to ascend into heaven, to create karma. To uh, what? So a lot of them are based on karma. A lot of them are based on religious actions. And all of these actions and attitudes enable you to ascend in order for you to get salvation, including humanism. The humanist says, well, we just got to get a little more intellectual. We just got to learn a little bit more knowledge. I just told this guy, I said, that's evidence that you're eating from the tree of knowledge. That's exactly the sin of Adam. Well, I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge, and we just need more knowledge. We need more knowledge. Every religion, and humanism is a religion. So I don't believe in anything. I'm an atheist. No, you believe in human being. No, I'm a nihilist. I don't believe in anything. Well, you're still, nihilism is a religion itself. There is no system of thought that a man or a woman can hold that is not based in an attitude of worship. You are created as a worshiper. So no matter what you think or believe, it becomes your ideology. And your ideology is what begins to direct your life and actually becomes the passion of your life. And the Bible defines anything that drives your passion as an idol. So there's nothing exclusive. There's nothing that you can avoid to not be a worshiper. Jesus Christ or Christianity is the only religion where God came down. The only one. God came down to be as us in order that we would be like him. He came down to save the hopeless and the helpless. No one else has done that. Among all religions, Jesus Christianity is exclusive. And among all other beliefs and all other prophets are all under icons of religious uh, belief, Jesus Christ is exclusive. He says, I'm the bread that came down. And they were like, who do you think you are? Well, he'd only just begun to tell them who he was. He says, I'm more than a good man. A certain ruler came to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. That's what he told him. So this man comes to him and he says, I know you're a teacher. I know you're a rabbi. Good teacher. What Jesus is saying here is that you don't have the option to call me good unless you're calling me God. The Bible's very, very explicit. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man's heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Your malevolence fills our world. What is malevolence? It is a willful intent to do evil to another for the gain of self. That's malevolence. And you've all committed malevolence. You've all willfully hurt someone else in order to benefit you. We're all guilty of it. So we're really not good. We're fallen, just as the Bible says. And so Jesus looks at him and says, unless you're calling me good, don't call me God. So he doesn't tolerate that middle ground. This is important because this is the most common thing. When you ask somebody in America and in the United States, who is Jesus? They're going to say, well, I think he was a good man. That's what they're going to say. That's almost the most common response to, from a non-believer. It's like, ah, he was just one among many or he was just a good guy. The problem with that is, is he doesn't give you the option. That's the main problem. That is not acceptable to him. And he doesn't accept that as an excuse. He wants you to make a decision. Either I am the son of God and the savior of the world or I'm not. And there's no in-between. Yes or no, make a decision. Well, I don't want to make a decision. Then you've made your decision. You're either for me or you're against me. And you say the gospel's narrow. Yes, it is. Christianity's belief is narrow. Yes, it is. I was reading a bunch of quotes by celebrities, and there was one celebrity that says, when Christians say that Jesus is the only way, Woody Harrelson, when Christians say Jesus is the only way, it offends me and makes me no longer want to be a Christian. I'm like, what did you just say? He actually thinks he's a Christian. That's what he believes. 
You think you're a Christian just because you park a car in a garage, just because you stand in a garage doesn't make you a car. You know, and just because grandpa was a Christian doesn't make, you a, doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you find yourself in a Christian nation, quote unquote, doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's an interpersonal belief. It's every single person is called to account on this. C.S. Lewis says Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's an author, very famous author. And he says the only options Jesus gives you is he's an absolute liar, and everything he says is total lies, or he's a lunatic, which means he's an absolute psychopath. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just crazy, right? Or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. Those are the only options we have. We do not have the option to, give, to say he's a good man. We do not have the option to say that he's one among many. This is very important to understand. Very important to understand. Because the church becomes tolerant of this. The church becomes tolerant of these attitudes. Well, Jesus is this, or Jesus is that. And I've read quotes by all these pastors, these sort of new pastors that are like on the scene, these young guys, and they go, well, you can have a relationship with God without Jesus. This is where we are in America today, ladies and gentlemen. And this is the stuff that provokes me and says, this is, this is why this, the message needs to be taught. Jesus needs to be clearly defined and clearly understood. And he doesn't need to be defined by me. He needs to be defined by himself. It's not God as you understand him to be. It's God who he declares himself to be. He's not interested in your understanding of him. He's not even interested in your opinion of him. He's declaring himself to you. Well, I believe he's like this, and I believe he's like that. It doesn't matter what you believe him to be unless what you believe him to be is congruent with what he says he is. You understand? He said he was sinless. Try this one on. Right? He said he was sinless. How many of you would like to try that on? He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm telling you the truth, yet you don't believe me. His whole life was on display, and he challenged everyone to prove him not to be sinless. Can any of you prove me without sin? Before he was crucified, he was examined thoroughly. He went three days and sat in the public square of the temple. And the lamb that was slain for the sin, it was a prophetic act that was symbolic of the, of the lamb that was slain for the nation. Every year when the priests would offer the Passover lamb, they would bring the lamb into the temple courts, and the lamb that was going to die for the nation on Passover would be examined by the priests. For three days, they would look that lamb over. And then if they would conclude whether the lamb was a worthy sacrifice or the lamb wasn't. Jesus being the Passover lamb, the personification of the Passover lamb, went into the temple, sat down in public, and was examined by three days by the Pharisees and the people that ever, he was publicly examined. Anybody and everybody, you have the Herodians, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, anybody with an opinion and anybody with a question came up and examined him, and he was found without spot and without blemish. He's then arrested, he's dragged before the high priests in a kangaroo court, completely breaking their own laws, yet they made an exception because it was Jesus. He was examined before the high priest and found without sin. They couldn't condemn him yet. So they send him to Herod. They send him to King Herod. Herod, the secular king, examines him and says, he's without sin. I find no reason to condemn this man. Then they send him to Pilate. He stands before Pilate. Many of you know the story. And Pilate what? Washed his hands. He said, the man is innocent and guilty of no sin. Even his family, when he was crucified. Anybody remember? Mary was at the cross, wasn't she? She was there. She watched him die. He had two half-brothers, James and Jude. Not one of them testified against him. Not one. Mary's watching her son die a brutal death. It wasn't a pleasant experience. She watches it. At any point, she could have stood up and said, 
It's not true. He's not born of a virgin. He's not born by the Spirit. He's not God. At any point, she could have done that. Yet she didn't. She watched him die. And she actually worshipped him. She was a part of the early church. And so Mary worshipped her son as God. Public display, proven without sin. No one can endure what he went through and be decreed. If his half-brother believed he didn't have sin, he would have come up. And James, James and Jude, his two half-brothers, didn't become believers until after he rose. So any of these claims, James could have went, um, sorry, that claim's not really true. And they didn't. He was sinless. Next slide. It's important to know, Muhammad never said he was sinless. L. Ron Hubbard never said he was sinless. Buddha never said he was sinless. Krishna never said he was sinless. Gandhi never said he was sinless. Jesus said, I am. I'm sinless. Why does that matter? Because only the sinless, spotless lamb can take away the sin of man. Sinlessness, only in his sinlessness state could he take away our sins. No other way. He said he was the son of man. This is very important. Again, he's going to speak right to the Jew. <laughs> this was a very important title to the Jew. Son of man was a very important title. Because at that point, they believed that the Messiah was going to come of divine origin, and he was going to come as a man. Modern Jews don't believe that he's going to be of divine origin. They believe the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be merely a man. Oh, how convenient. Yet, the early church, or not the early church, but the Hebrew people at this time, they knew Messiah was coming and he was going to be born of man. That's why he was going to be called the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was going to be both, of divine origin, born as a man. And so here Jesus is going to bling the name of Son of Man everywhere he goes. Eighty times he uses this title. Son of Man, 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 Son of Man. Two reasons. One, he's saying, I'm a credential, I am the son of man, and I bear the credentials of the decree. This is what Daniel said. In my vision, I looked before, Daniel has a prophet, he's got a prophetic vision, and he says, there was one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. That's the father. So we have the son of man coming before the father. What Daniel is seeing, see what Jesus did, he's divine. Jesus took off his deity and took on humanity. That's important to understand. Because you read where everything was given back to him, and you think, well, see, look, Jesus wasn't divine. It was given to him. No, it was restored to him. He was God from the beginning, but he took it off and born of a virgin, born of a man, born of a woman, and then he, he, he set it aside. He, wasn't even, he didn't even access his divine attributes on the earth. This is, again, important to understand. Not one place does Jesus access his divine attributes without the power of the Holy Spirit. Not once. He completely stripped himself of all that he was in his deified form, took on humanity. He's born of God, but he did not speak or do any act without the Holy Spirit. Important to understand. Nothing that he did, he did apart from the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's giving us a model. As he is, so are we. As he is, so are we. That's why he says greater works than these you can do. Why? He set aside his deity, took on humanity. That's why he had to pray. If Jesus was of divine origin, when he gives a word of knowledge, he's doing it by the Spirit. When he has a word of discernment, he's doing it by the Spirit. When he's following a leading where he has to go to certain places, he's following it by the Spirit. Important to know. Jesus did, you say, well, Jesus walked on water because he was God. You can't say that theologically. You either have to accept him as man, as God in the flesh, or you have to accept him as he's divine. 
Because you, what, what happens is, is there's a law of Bible study called hermeneutics. And basically, one of the laws of hermeneutics is what you begin with is what you must finish with. So if you begin with the premise that Jesus walked on the water, that he did, everything he did, he did as God, then we're not saved because the ending premise is then he died on the cross as God. If you understand where I'm going. This is how Bible study is correctly. This is how you understand your, your scripture. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I think he was this here and I think he was this here and I think he was this there. No, it's a consistency of scripture. It, what you begin with is what you end with. Jesus Christ was man. Jesus Christ, God, became man, lived among us as God, setting aside his divine attributes, which means he didn't decide to act, he didn't access them. What he did access was the Holy Spirit. That's why when you see him coming forth from the, from the wilderness, what does it say? He returned in the what? The power of the Spirit. And from that time forward, miracles began. That's when Jesus said, repent, because the king's dominion is here right now. Nowhere did he even mention the king's dominion being there until he came out of the wilderness and filled with the Spirit. This is like a, we, we have this broken theology within the church that is not congruent with the scripture. We got to understand our thing. We got to understand what's going on here. It's very important. He has a vision of Christ coming before the Father. And what Daniel is witnessing is he is witnessing Jesus being restored to his position. That's what he's witnessing. Because it was given to him authority. It was given to him glory. It was given to him sovereign power. And all of the peoples worshipped him. All of the things that were given to him in Daniel 9 are divine. His dominion is an everlasting communion. And it's a kingdom that will not pass away. He's a king. So when Jesus is saying, I am the son of man, what he's saying is, I have authority. I have glory. I'm worthy of worship. I'm a king. I have dominion and I have sovereign power. And that's why when he used the word son of man in front of the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, they went bat crazy. They went nuts every time he used that word. And they picked up stones to throw it at him. And if you, being a non-Jew, read that, you go, well, what's the big deal? He said he's the son of man. Why they want to kill him? That's why they want to kill him, because he's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be the son of God. You guys are just staring at me like crickets, you know? It's like all sides of the room are like... I don't know about that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm going to come back to this point because this is maybe where I lost some of you. Okay? In order for God to save us, he must be like us. Can we agree? God must become man. He never ceased to be God. He was always God, but he was always man. He had to become like us, and he had to save us as we are. He cannot save us as he is. He had to become like us to save us as we are. And then, that's why he's praying in the end. You hear him when he's praying in the, in John, in the end of John, John 14, 15, 16. He said, restore my glory that I had with you from the beginning. Why does he need it restored? Because he laid it aside. He laid it down. And why did he lay it down? For you and me. If you really understand what Jesus did, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we can't even imagine heaven. But we know the earth. And the earth is a cesspool. Okay? We live in modern times in America where everything's clean and shiny to the best that we can make it, but the world is not like that in most parts of the world. And Jesus came down, he left the purity of heaven and came into the impurity of men. No wonder his spirit groaned within him. But in order for us to be saved, he had to become like us, fully divine, fully man. And in becoming like us, he could not access divine attributes. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says all power and authority. This is the doctrine that the church excludes. But it's clear. 
That's why he says, all power and authority has been given to me, therefore go. He commands you and I to go forth in the power and authority that he has given us. That's why he looks at you and me and says, you heal the sick, you raise the dead, you cleanse the lepers, and you cast out demons. It's an emphatic imperative, and it's a direct command. That, that word that he spoke in Greek is not a suggestion. It's not a question. He's not asking you. He's not suggesting. It's called, it's, it, it is the strongest sense in the Greek structure of a command. And how could he say that to us? Because he said, I've modeled it for you. You now have the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the church must walk in the Spirit. We don't manifest kingdom because we think it's all out there. He's given it to you. You have the power and the authority of heaven within you. It does not mean you know what you're doing with it. It doesn't mean some of you have never even touched on it. Some of you, you just kind of put, dip your toe in the water, go, yeah, whoo, I got a, little, got a little shiver there. That's the Holy Spirit. Or I feel the warm glow of the witness upon the heart. <laughs> Nobody was given the fullness of the power of the kingdom, the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit until Christ rose. And he tells us very plainly, it is to your benefit that I go, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit will not come. But when he comes, all of this is going to happen. The Christian's biggest error and the biggest fatal flaw of the believer is not confessing unto Christ, but following the Holy Spirit and learning and adapting and relating to him in every single aspect and area of their life, not only learning him so that he can transform you, but learning him in order that he can manifest through you. The Holy Spirit is designed to manifest through you. We dumb it down. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. And the devil opposes it with violence. With violence he opposes. The church is a partner, and the church wants to kill the Holy Spirit every chance they get. And we want to redefine the Holy Spirit. If you want a definition of Jesus and the definition of the Holy Spirit, look no further than the Word of God. Look no further. Look no further than the early church in Acts, from Acts chapter 2 forward. And you ask me, do we see that? Do we see jails breaking open? Do we see dead raised? Do we see prophets who claim to be of God silenced and literally publicly blinded? I tell you, on CNN, it wouldn't be an issue of the monitors. They'd all go blind. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Whoever, pick one. I'm just picking somebody that likes to pick on, pick on Christians. We don't see it. We don't see it because there's, clearly there's a fatal error. And here, let me, let me just bring you behind the veil, Christian. The leadership of the church teaches falsities to the believer. We teach doctrines of men, not doctrines of Scripture. Not all, but when you say there's no power for the day, that's a doctrine. That's called a dogma. A dogma is the opinion of a man brought forth as the teaching of God. There's nowhere in Scripture that says the power is ended. Nowhere. Show it to me. It doesn't exist. They anchor it off of one point, saying, well, when that which is full has come, that which is in part will be done away with. Therefore, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist, or is no longer... Really? You're going to anchor that doctrine off that one verse that is not even in context to what you're saying? That's the only anchor point. There's miracles. He's never rescinded his miracles. He's never... Just because we can't manifest them and we don't know what we're doing does not mean we have the right to create a doctrine that says that God isn't doing it anymore. He's clearly doing it. The problem is with us, not with him. I'm serious. I'm serious. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to encounter power. We don't know how to host power. It's the, the power of God is everything. The word of God is without substance, without power. 
The letter kills, the Bible says, but the Spirit gives life. It's true. The Word and the Spirit combined are what produce the perfect storm and the power of God coming into the lives of the people and into the lives of the world. We've, knew, we've completely gotten rid of the Holy Spirit. And we think, well, Jesus did that because he was, Jesus raised the dead girl because he was God. No, Jesus raised the dead girl because he was in tune with the Holy Spirit. He manifested that not of his own will, but of the Spirit's will. It's true. I got two. I'll applaud myself on that. That was good work, guys. 80 times. So what he's doing is he's, he's saying this to them, and they look at him, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we got to kill this guy. He's, it's true. He said he was God. This is an extraordinary claim, right? The, it is the, Christianity is the only faith that is started by someone who claimed to be God. The only one. There's no other religion, no other faith that's started by a guy that goes, hey, I'm God. But Christianity was. He claimed to be God. And most people will say, well, Christians made that up. Jesus never said he was God. Really? And you did that research where? I love it. I love to talk to people who find themselves to be experts on Jesus or experts on the Bible, and they know nothing. Have you ever read the Bible? Well, no, but I believe. Oh, okay. You're the resident expert on Scripture. You're the resident expert on who Jesus is, and you don't, you've never even examined him or looked into the claims of his life. Most who have examined him thoroughly, not as an antagonist, but as a protagonist or someone who's open, there are people who examine Jesus, and the only thing they're doing is looking for a reason not to believe. Your sin remains. Man must have an open posture, come as a child, be willing to learn, and when he comes as a child and is willing to learn, the gospel will be revealed to them. But so long as you're an antagonist and you're looking to accuse him, Jesus said you're a blind, they're, they're blind leaders of the blind. That's what he told them. He said, all these people, they're just antagonists towards me. That's why he told them to leave the Pharisees alone, because that's all they would do is they would be antagonists. They weren't looking for a reason to believe, they were looking for a reason not to. Big difference. He said he was God. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. And they took up, I am. And they took up stones and they want to kill him. They're like, why do you want to kill him? He just said, I am. What's going on here? Again, he's talking to the Jewish people. And he invokes the name Yahweh or Yahweh, right? They took him. Jesus hid himself and moved right through them. They said, you have a demon. He says, wrong. I'm the giver of eternal life. If it were not true, I would have told you. He says, you know Abraham? Yeah, you know Abraham. This is what's going on there. They're all saying, we say rightly that you have a demon. And all the things that you say are demonic. And all these manifestations, oh, here's the modern church. Oh, that healing's of the devil. That healing's of the devil. Really? So Lucifer's running around healing people. Really? Last I read, he steals, kills, and destroys. Oh, that's a false miracle. Says who? Says who? I just had this conversation two weeks ago and I asked the guy, like, oh, you're the expert on miracles, huh? You want to tell the church what's false and what's not and what's, re you know, there's, it, all these miracles are false? Like, how many miracles have you witnessed? Crickets. How many miracles not only have you witnessed, how many miracles has the Holy Spirit manifested through you? Crickets. So you've never, you don't, you've never, you've never seen the Holy Spirit do anything, yet you are the opinion and you are the one who wants to give the counsel on what's a real miracle and what's not. Like Job, you should put your hand over your mouth because you speak like a fool. That's what's Job's problem. All of these boasts and all of these things. And the Lord showed up and goes, really, Job? You have all these opinions. You have all these things to say. Well, let me ask you a few questions. And Job couldn't answer one of them. And so Job says, in the end, I put my hand over my mouth because I speak as a fool. So a lot of Christians need to put their hand over their mouth because they speak as a fool. True. If you don't know, you should be quiet. That's all I got to say. 
If you don't know, you should be quiet. You should be silent. Silence is better than a false, arrogant opinion. There's nothing more offensive. One of the offensive things of God is when you, when you have an uninformed opinion. You give opinions about things which you do not know. The Bible calls you a cloud without water. You're an empty cloud. You're moving through the atmosphere, but there's nothing in you. There's no substance with you, but you pretend like you, there is. Clouds without water. They say, you got a demon. He's like, wrong answer. I give eternal life. He said, if it wasn't true, I would have told you. He goes, you all know Abraham? They're like, yeah. He goes, before Abraham was? And he goes, Yahweh, what? And drops the mic. <laughs> he invokes the name of Yahweh. Next slide. What is he doing? In the Old Testament, Moses had an encounter with a burning bush. And in the burning bush, the Lord began to speak to him and says, you're going to go forth as a deliverer, and I want you to bring my people out of bondage. And Moses asked, who do I say sent me? Who am I going to ask me? By what authority do you come? How do you get here? What's the deal? And God had a name that was a secret name at that time. And it's even to this day, the Jews wouldn't even utter it. They would never use the name. And Jesus puts it on full display. He like hits the lights. And he puts it out there in neon. They would not even speak that name. And when they wrote it, they would abbreviate it. They wouldn't use the, all of the letters. They would only use symbol, uh, symbolic letters. Like they would only use three of the letters. They would take letters out because they didn't want to disrespect or dishonor or in their mind blaspheme the name. So they were very careful not to use it. And Jesus is like, rock on. Here it is. You're not only going to use the name, I am the name. And he speaks to Moses through a bush and he says, who shall I send sent you? And he says a couple of things very interesting. And hopefully I got time for this. He says a couple of things very interesting. He said, Isaac and Abraham did not know me by this name, but by the name Yahweh, you're going to go. So he told him Yahweh. But if you do the research on this, this is a very important point. Okay. Because it's important to understand the dynamic of God that's going on here. Isaac and Abraham, he told them his name was Yahweh. So what is Jesus saying to him when he says, they didn't know me by Yahweh. If you break the word apart, what Jesus does at that moment is he inserts a verb tense into his, into his name. He's no longer, it's no longer Yahweh. From that point on, it's Yahweh. He puts ha in the middle of it. Literally, okay, I'll tell you the story and then I'll get, I'll get to the point. So my wife and I have this beautiful woman, wonderful woman. Her name's Jordan. Oh, I shouldn't have used her name. Anyway, I will edit that. But anyway, she's a wonderful woman, but she doesn't care. She won't care. And when she would come to pray for you, and this woman was a prayer warrior, and you needed power, this chick, was, she was on. But her first thing when she'd come to pray for you, she laid hands on you, and as soon as she laid hands on you, she'd go, Haya! And then she'd start praying. And she didn't do this once or twice. Every time the woman would go to pray for you, she would lay hands on you and go, Haya! And so we were, I was like, that's a little eclectic, you know, okay. But it got to be to such a degree that we would always tease her. We'd go up to Jordan and we'd go, Haya! Hiya, you know? And God corrected me because I was studying the book of Exodus at the time. And I was I break to break words apart and I like to get down to the roots of the meanings. And I looked at that phrase where he says, they didn't know me by this. I was like, what the heck's going on here? And I looked and I saw that God gave Moses a verb tense that he never gave Abraham and Isaac. They knew him as the God of the past and the God of the future. And what God puts into that word is the word Haya. And it means now. So when he adds to his name, as he's talking to Moses, he says, Haya, which means now. And here's this woman, not knowing why she's praying it, and you'd ask her, and she'd go, I just feel like the Lord gave me that name. And so when she's laying hands on her, what she's saying is she's going, now. 
come on. I was like, okay. I put my hand over my mouth. I speak as a fool. <laughs> Very important. He's telling them, Isaac and Abraham knew me as the God that was and the God that will be. You will know me as the God that is right now. And that is literally the theme of all of the book of Exodus. Exodus and King James Version begins with one word, and it begins with the word now. That is the theme of the book of Exodus, is right now. Not tomorrow, not next week. Let my people go now. You will go forth now. So you have a new perspective on Haya, I'm sure. Then he says, he didn't, not only that, he says it again. He says this. Then they bring him before the high priest, and Jesus keeps silent. And the high priest asks him, he says, watch this. I put you under oath to the living God. Are you the Messiah, the son of the highest, or the son of God? And Jesus says, I, he says, yes. It is as you, he doesn't say yes. He says, it is as you say. Okay? And so they ask him again. So they've got to be clear. Wait a minute. Did you just say that? And so they ask him again. Jesus remained silent, gave him, and again the high priest asked, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus gets a little clearer, and he says, I am. See, Jesus never claimed to be God. He sure did. He might have never made it through public school, but you can read that and go, yeah, I, 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 think, he, uh, I think he's saying he's God right there. And he said, you'll see the Son of Man, there it is again, coming in the high clouds, and you'll see it, and when he said, he, when, so he not only says, I am God, and then he says, I'm not only God, I am the embodiment of the Son of Man. They tear their clothes, they go, the, the court's over, he said yes, he's confessed, this is blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. Jesus wasn't crucified for being Mr. Rogers and telling nice stories. They killed him because he said he was God. When he hung on the cross, the charge over him was blasphemy. It says, here hangs Jesus, king of the Jews, and the Romans would put the charge by which he was convicted, and the charge was blasphemy. And Jesus would say to that charge, I'm guilty. You're, you're crucifying me for, being, for claiming to be God? G guilty. Next slide. He said we can pray to him, and he alone can forgive sins. Try that one on. So whatever you ask in my name, I will do it for you, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What's he saying? I have the power to hear prayer, and I have the power to answer it. I'm sorry, last time I checked, that was divine. Here he is. He's at Simon's house, right? And he's forgiving sins. He's at a, he's at a house of a Pharisee. He's at one of, the, one of these wealthy people in Jerusalem, very sophisticated, very educated guy, very formal dinner party. And Jesus has friends in low places, like the Garth Brooks song, Okay. So he's in this fine affair. He's here in this beautiful party, this dinner party that this priest Simon has put on, and in comes a prostitute, and she falls at his feet, and she begins to cry and weep and wash his feet with her tears and, and just all of these things. And what Simon says in his heart, Simon says in his heart, he says, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know the kind of woman that's holding him. She's a sinner. In other words, we don't associate with those, and we don't touch those. So if he was truly a prophet, he wouldn't be doing this. And Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, when I came into my house, you didn't greet me. When I came into your house, you didn't honor me. When I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't pay any kind of homage to me whatsoever. Yet this woman, who you view as less, has not ceased to kiss my feet and wash my feet with, the hair, with her tears and her hair. And those who began to say, to say, who is he who forgives sins? He looks at her and he says, Daughter, or he didn't say daughter, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then they say, who is this, that he, who is this, who does he think he is that forgives sins? And Jesus goes, oh, we're going to go there? Right? 
So he goes, your sins are forgiven. He looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And they go, who does he think he is? He can forgive sins. Jesus is like, I not only can forgive sins, I'm going to give eternal life. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So they take it to a level, and Jesus goes, oh, yeah? We're going to go higher. He not only forgives sins, he gave her eternal life. He's the only one with that power. And here we have the same thing. We have a paralytic laying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And at once, (laughs) immediately, the scribes said to themselves, this man is a blasphemer. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think this evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Arise and take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he rose and departed. He's like, it doesn't matter which way I say it, which way you want me to say it. The authority is mine, and it's free to give. (laughs) He put it out there, and it was it. No one else could say. Next slide. So he says we can pray to him. This is what Jesus says about himself. We can pray to him. He says he, can, uh, he says he can forgive sins, or he will forgive sins. Here's another one. He will judge. This is an inconvenient truth, very inconvenient to a lot of people. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. Christ has become like us. He lived as we were, endured what we, he died, he lived a life we should have, we, we should have lived. He died a death we couldn't, we, for a debt we couldn't pay, and he has risen. Therefore, as us, he came as us, and now because he has done this, he sits in judgment or in authority over all mankind. All nations, all ethnic groups, all governments, all religions, all philosophy, he alone is the authority. He sits in the Bema seat, the seat of reward to the believer, and he sits upon the white throne of judgment to those who reject his name. But he sits in authority. He will reward the believer with authority. And he will judge those who've rejected him with authority. That's somebody just this weekend tell me, when I get before the Lord, I'm going to say a few things to him. If it's true, if it's true, okay, if it's true, when I get there, I'm going to talk. I go, you won't say a word. You will be silent. You will not even be allowed to open your mouth. Silence before the Lord. You will come there, and it will be utter silence. And you'll see the one who sits on the throne whose eyes burn as fire. That's who you'll know. And when he speaks, it will be the voice of many waters. He will sit in authority and judgment over your life. And you will be called to account for every time you've rejected him. I told him, it's like, what about the people over here? And what about the people over there? And I'm like, listen, God's judged his people according to their conscience without knowledge. So without knowledge, God will judge them according to the law of conscience. That's in Romans. But those who have knowledge, which would be all y'all, including myself, and including the person that I was talking to, I said, you've heard the gospel. So there's no excuse. You have none. True. You ever go before the court and they say, I didn't know? You ever try that? You try try that with a cop. I I didn't know the speed limit was 35. Yeah? Okay. There you go. Doesn't matter. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes and hears my voice, so he's going to tell us what qualifies eternal life. He's going to say, faith in me is what qualifies you for eternal life. Then he's going to say, the rejection of me and who I am is what qualifies, is what leaves you in the state that you are. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. You're already in a condemned state without him. Mankind is hopeless and helpless without him. Without Christ, your destiny and your doom is eternal damnation, period. That's why he's called Savior. Well, what's he saving you from? He's saving you from hell. He's saving you from the consequences of sin that have infected the human race. That's what he's doing. Why God would reject. He doesn't reject you. You've rejected him. 
He's offered himself to you fully in the personhood of Jesus Christ. And he said, here I am. I will embrace you. You can come as you are. I'll help you. So there's no rejection of him, of you on his part. He does not reject you. You're the one rejecting him. You say, oh, I don't want it like that. I don't believe you. I want it this way. I want it that way. It doesn't matter which way you want it. He's offered it to you, and he's offered it to you on his terms, and he's offered it to you one way. Choice is yours. It's not a negotiation. Anybody have teenagers? My son is a negotiator. I'm telling you, bro, your, your, your destiny's in sales. He likes to negotiate. And I tell him all the time, this is not a negotiation. <laughs> There's no negotiation on this. As the Father has life in himself. So he says this, do not marvel at this. The hour is coming when the graves will come forth and those who have done good, which is to receive him, he just defined it, will come to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, what does he equate as evil? Rejecting him as Lord. That's evil. You've rejected my offer of salvation. You've offended the living God. You treat the blood of the covenant as a common thing. Nothing remains for you but fear of impending judgment, period. You reject Christ. The Bible clearly says you're going to be resurrected to condemnation. And he says, I'm going to judge. So who gets into heaven and hell? It's not the cosmic scales. Well, I did good. I'm kind of doing good. I'm not doing good. You know, I believe my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. Well, how's that going for you? We don't know. Jesus said that the entrance into my kingdom is determined solely by me. Solely by me. And it's determined and it's predicated upon what you do or do not do with Jesus Christ. And there are those, I'm sure, in this room who have a form of belief but have never truly converted in their heart. And you'll stand before him and you're going to stand there silent and he's going to play that reel to you. And he's going to show you sitting in the room while the gospel was declared. Clearly. I'm not going to stutter and I'm not going to hide it. You know, the Bible requires the pastor to speak it clearly, clearly, in season and out. We speak the gospel of the kingdom, and the main aspect of the gospel of the kingdom, the entry point, is salvation. Amen. And pastors need to speak it without hesitation. Amen. I don't care if you stand on your head and twirl. It doesn't matter. Speak it, and speak it true. We'd kill him today. If Jesus walked into the philosophy department at some of the universities you go to, and he said... I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto God but by me. All of the leftist Antifa protesters would probably beat him from the campus. How dare you, you intolerant one? How dare you? If he walked into the synagogues today and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. If he walked into a, a mosque today and said, no one comes unto the Father but by me. If he stood in the city courts most cities, most towns, most peoples would beat him from their presence because they would call him intolerant. They'd call him a bigot and intolerant. True. He has no problem offending people. I just want to know. I don't like offending people. So I try to smile when I say something. Jesus says it and he doesn't blink. He just says it. Looks right at you. Got a problem with that? <gasps> Jesus would never do that. You don't know who he is. You believe a different Jesus. Is he loving? Yes. Is he gracious? Yes. Is he good? Yes. Is he kind? Yes. But he also loves you too much to relieve you the same. He also will challenge your false belief systems. That's right. He'll come right up against it. He'll challenge you. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension is a prototype to all who believe. You will die, and your spirit will go somewhere. And what the Bible teaches us to the Christian, we will follow the pattern that Christ has laid down for us. 
Through our death, we will experience a resurrection and we will experience an ascension and we will go to be with him forever. World without end, life everlasting. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To the unbeliever, I'm going to tell you this. The Bible says, well, I don't know about hell. I'm going to tell you, it's clearly defined. Jesus clearly defines it. No one spoke about hell more than Jesus. Nobody. Now you have people that get uncomfortable. Go, oh, gosh, the pastor's talking about hell. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm just uncomfortable. We're talking about hell. Uh. <laughs> when you die, the unbeliever does this. When they die, they go to a place called Sheol, which is a place of holding. Then from there, they await the final judgment. And at the final judgment, hell in the grave, Sheol, will give up its dead. And those who have been held in a holding place will go and stand before the Lord. The books will be opened. And your name will be looked to see if you're in the book of life, which you clearly won't be, if that's where you ended up. And not only that, then there will be the deeds. You will account for your deeds. And then you will be taken from, you will go before the judge. Sentence will be rendered. And then you will go to a place called Gehenna, which is a place, the Bible calls it an eternal fire. That's a very inconvenient truth. We don't want to believe it. We're like ostriches. We like to stick our head in the sand, right? You ever seen this big bird, an ostrich? It actually thinks it's hiding by sticking its head in the sand. Oh, it's not true. It's not true. We stick our head in the sand. No, this is an inconvenient truth. Next slide. Jesus answers with a question, the last question he asks them. This is the last thing I'm going to say to you. Do I have another one? That's it. He takes all of the people. He tells them who he is. And then he looks back at them. Okay, this is in the context of the Gospels. Not in sequence, but this is in the overall story of the Gospels. He tells them who he is. And then he looks at him. He says, who do you say I am? He said, Lord, there's lots of opinions. Some say you're, some say you're uh, 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 Isaiah. Others say you're this. You ever say this? He's like, all these other things. You know, when I was downtown washing my camel, and somebody said, you're Isaiah. And he says, who do you say I am? That is the most important question that anybody could ask. Who do you say that he is? You don't have an opportunity to say that he was a good man. That's not the option. Your, op your opportunity is liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which one is he to you? And it's not an external belief. If you believe he is Lord, then you must surrender your life to him. And say, how do you do that? Well, it's a pattern. Jesus said, I'm God. You can pray to me. I'm God. You all will confess. If you confess your sins to me, I have the power to forgive them. Right? I have the ability to grant eternal life. This is what he has. How do we get born again? We get born again with an oath. There's power in your words. So God has given us an ability, and you see it with marriage, right? very common in marriage. You give your heart, you give your words, and you give your possessions. That's what it is. And they're married. Well, we signed a paper. Yeah, I get it. When you come to Christ, you give your words, you give your heart. This is what it means. And Jesus gives you a possession called the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad? He confirms your action with the Spirit of God. That's why when Christians don't have the Holy Spirit, you, the Bible says you need to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. If you have no communion with the Holy Spirit, you're not even aware of His presence, you may not be saved. Intellectual belief does not lead to conversion. I'm not saying you've got to manifest the Spirit and you're wielding miracles everywhere, but you should have the witness of the Holy Spirit within your heart. The presence of the Spirit should be in your heart, and you should be able to recognize it, if not every day, at least from time to time. Him, not it. So if you're here this morning, we're going to close right here, and then I'm going to speak a blessing over you. And you've never given your life to Christ, today's your day. Let me give you an opportunity. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be. It says you will be. So it's through belief in the heart and confession of the mouth. So we're going to say a prayer. 
And as you're saying this prayer, all I want you to do is by faith open your heart and, invite, and we're going to invite Jesus to come in with the prayer. But nobody can open your heart but you. And so let's pray together. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. Come on, we can do better than that. And I need a Savior. I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I may not understand it, but I choose to believe it. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. You say that's it? That's the start of it. We have a, yeah, come on. Yeah. But we have a prayer team available if you need prayer. We've got about 10 minutes in between services, but there's a prayer team over there. They're going to hit you. So may the Lord bless you. Come on, receive this. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. Forever may you live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.